hi and welcome to the October edition of The Courageous Mama. Good to be back with you. I mentioned on an earlier podcast, and I'll just mention it again in case you missed it, that whilst we've got three foster children in tow, our own children at large and our elderly neighbour to look after and I'm coaching three solid days a week, I'm going to come to you once a month. And this month, let me tell you, I have got an absolute corker. I meet all sorts of interesting people and I think, oh, jump on my podcast. I met two at a party over the weekend, so you'll be hearing from them soon. They were fascinating. But Meg Sawford, who's coming on the podcast today, I met on an aeroplane. And I don't know about you, but usually when I jump on an aeroplane, or I don't jump on an aeroplane, I sit on an aeroplane seat, I usually have that kind of, hi, nice to see you, but don't bother me, look on my face, because sometimes it's just a moment of peace. But this girl, she just caught my attention and she was fascinating. I really enjoyed her company. We were coming back from Spain at the end of the summer holidays with the children and she was, you know, she fascinated me for all sorts of reasons, but she said such sensible things. You know how you meet someone and they're just so sensible. They're just kind of quirky and fun, but wise as well. And she was, and she had entirely taught herself Spanish from an app. I, I mean, my hat to that. And then she pointed out the most obvious thing, which is, well, you just schedule in the time. And I thought, that is just the truth of it, isn't it? It's all about priorities. And it reminded me, I need to schedule in joining a gym. That's another topic altogether. But our topic for today is first aid. Now, that might, on the face of it, sound a little bit boring. But actually, if you're surrounded by young children, middle-sized children, or out and about in the community, there are some tips in this week's podcast that I think you'll be really grateful for. Now, as foster carers, we have to do a first aid course once a year. And a lot of it I forget. But there was just a way that Meg was articulating herself on the aeroplane that made me think, ooh, you're efficient in your delivery, but you kind of make it stick. So anyway, she very kindly agreed to jump on. So I'm going to ask you some questions and I'll test you at the end. Okay, so why are these two things useful in your first aid kit? A credit card and a roll of cling film. If you know that, you're one ahead of me already. When do you ask a casualty to kneel down? So those are three questions. If you've got all three of them already, well done you. And whether you have or you haven't, you are going to find tips in here that will stick and that may help you in that critical moment. And who knows, may save a life. And just to let you know what sort of a magical doctor I am, I'll give you a scenario in our house. I don't know about you, but we seem to divide up the fluids. <laughs> okay, let me be really specific. I do poo and he does snot and blood. I mean, literally, I'm just not good with blood. And to give you an example, I was sitting in the garden having a cup of tea with my brother a few years ago. And I noticed that Colm was sitting in the middle of the kitchen on a chair, which didn't look normal. So I said to Luke, you know, let's just go and check that out. That seems a bit odd. And we went in and he'd put a pickaxe through his leg. But even with a pickaxe through his leg, he knew that he was better off on his own than with me. So that gives you an idea of quite how medical I am. So it's good that Meg Sawford has hopped on today to put us straight about loads of things. I'm confident you'll enjoy this as much as I have. If 
I open my first aid cupboard, I should think there was half a hospital in there after this many years of parenting. But what do you think people might have forgotten to put in their kit? So actually some household things that you would have around the house anyway are actually good first aid tools. So something sugary for someone who has low blood pressure, cling film, excellent for keeping uh, burns clean. Not something that people typically think of. Um, just bandages, gloves and plasters are going to do you for most first aid situations. And the other kind of obscure one is aspirin. If you suspect somebody is having a heart attack, you can ask them to chew on an aspirin tablet, provided they're not allergic to it, they're over 16, um, and they're not already on any blood thinning medication. Uh, and that's not something people would think to do to get someone to chew on an aspirin for chest pain, but it could be a life-saving piece of information. Just bearing in mind how uninformed I am here, could an aspirin work that quickly in a critical situation? Yes, if you chew it rather than waiting for it to be absorbed by the stomach, it will absorb through the into the bloodstream through your mouth. And how is that going to prevent the heart attack from continuing? Or aspirin acts as a acts as a blood thinner. So where there's a clot in the heart from uh, which is what a heart attack is, um, having thinner blood means it's easier for blood to still circulate. Brilliant. Going back to the burn, what would you do with your cling film? Okay, so after you've run the burn under cold running water for at least 20 minutes, removed any jewellery, um, you can then use the cling film to actually dress the burn if you're going to take or send the casualty to hospital. It helps uh, stop getting anything stuck in it, be it the car seat or your jacket or uh, what have you, because pulling bits of clothing out of a burn is rather painful um, and bandages won't serve that purpose because they're basically they're going to get stuck in the burn. So cling film is a really good alternative to a, to a burn stressing. Wouldn't cling it and then run it under cold water? You No, running it under cold running water is the highest priority. And quite often, especially as stubborn adults, we don't run stuff underwater for long enough. Because the second you stop touching the object that's burnt you, your skin is still continuing to burn after that contact has stopped. So you need the cold running water to, um, to stop that burning effect from happening. Okay, going back to cuts, I mean, obviously, my husband took the pickaxe out of his leg. <laughs> but there are cases aren't there where you get glass stuck in or whatever. What do you do in or out? Uh, uh, leave it in. Um, if it's anything bigger than a splinter or perhaps some, just some grit, you know, children often fall over uh, hands, knees, what have you get grit stuck in it. If it's something you can rinse out, fine, you can deal with that at home. Uh, a splinter, a pair of tweezers, pull it out in the same direction that it went in in. Um, anything bigger than that, carefully dress around the object if it's bleeding a lot um, and just get them to hospital. Medical professionals are trained. They know what tendons, blood vessels, what have you are are in that area and be able to pull it out in the um, in the best way possible um, and you also don't know what shape that object is particularly if it's glass could be shaped like a fish hook if you're pulling that out you're then causing more damage on the way out than you did on the way in and if it's not it's a pointy thing why would you leave it in just leaving it for the hospital to work out the best way to get that out rather than just yanking it out and potentially causing more damage um, it's also quite painful for the casualty. If they go off to hospital, they can potentially have some local anaesthetic to make that a, a less painful process as well. Yeah. It's counterintuitive to leave something in, isn't it? It yeah. is, yeah. Um, so talking of leaving things in or out, things up ears, in noses, in ears and up noses, in or out? Yeah, it's a common one with young children. Again, just caution, I would say. Um, if it's something quite straightforward with noses, you know, you can get them to block one side of their nose and blow hard on the other side. That might work. Um, ears, you might be able to rinse it out, but um, 
I think when it comes down to it, again, the hospital or even sometimes the GP surgery has the tools to be able to put in a really fine jet wash in behind the object and flush it out correctly rather than messing around with it and potentially making it any worse. Because mm, you can put it in further, can't you? Yeah, exactly. So let's go to sort of slightly more serious. And how do you know if a child's unconscious or how to respond in those scenarios? Okay, so best way to check for a response um, with any age group is just by tapping on the shoulders and calling out their name. Um, Hello, Madeline, can you hear me? If you can get a verbal response from them, then they are conscious or responsive. Um, if you can get some sort of movement out of them when you're calling their name and tapping them on the shoulders, so using voice and also using pressure by tapping the shoulders, then they are responsive. If you get no response to that at all, then they're classed as unresponsive and you can then pass that on to the ambulance service. And is there a colour attached with unconsciousness? Not necessarily. Yeah, no. colour relates to circulation. So a casualty that has poor circulation will have a pale face. A casualty that has a lot of circulation um, at the surface level of the skin will have a red face. Um, but it's not always a telltale sign of consciousness. Whether they're responsive or not is purely based on do they respond to voice and to tapping on the shoulders. But going back to colour, I know that when I did my first day course, I came away thinking, got it. And now I'm just thoroughly confused. There seems to be some difference between, and of course, we're talking about older people here generally, um, grey or sweaty. So where, where have I got muddled? So um, there is a really easy way to remember this. If they're pale, raise the tail. So if you have someone who's very pale in the face, it means they have poor circulation um, and they could be suffering from shock. So raise the tail means elevate their feet to allow gravity to circulate blood better to the head and therefore the vital organs in the brain and also in the lungs, heart and liver in the chest area as well. Okay. And what about grey? Grey is very bad. That is a more extreme version of looking pale. It means that there's seriously something wrong with that person's circulation. Uh, and the same thing applies. Check their response level, call an ambulance, elevate the feet to treat for shock. Keep them warm as well and reassure them because they might be able to hear you. Of course. Sweaty. Without going into too much detail, it can be caused by a number of different things. There are lots of conditions that can cause a casualty to become sweaty. From a first aid point of view, do you need to memorise what that means? Probably not. I would just go purely based on their response level. And if they're looking pale, raise the tail and just keep it as simple as that. And then talking about response levels, let's say, um, you know, I mean, most people who listen to this are parents. But of course, we're all out in the community like everyone else. And mm -hmm. defibrillate, come on, help me with this. <laughs> defibrillate it. They're also called AEDs, which might be easier to say. <laughs> yeah. AEDs. I know that my mum's WI raised money to put three AEDs locally. Fantastic. Um, to be honest, if someone fell over in the street, I wonder if the average person would think, I wouldn't know what to do with an AED. Get yeah, and this is a problem that we have. So they're in a lot of different locations now, um, and they're actually designed to be used by someone who's never seen them before. Get one, turn it on, and it gives you the instructions. It will tell you, apply pads to bare chest. It will tell you, shocking casualty now, stand back, do not touch the patient, press the orange button now, everything like that. Um, and even if you have a hearing problem or hearing impairment or English is not your first language, there are diagrams on it. There are flashy lights on it. There are symbols and all sorts of things. They're designed to be used by everyday people who have had no previous training on how to use an AED. An automated external defibrillator is what AED stands for. And, you know, that alone can save a life, knowing that actually the fear factor doesn't need to be there and you can make a difference by grabbing it. And it will tell you. What yeah, it's just information that needs to be out there, isn't it? 
a relative of my sister's was actually saved by an AED in a GP surgery that had only been installed two days before he went into cardiac arrest in the GP surgery. Had that not been there and had the staff not, you know, given it a go and turned it on and used it, um, he wouldn't be around telling that story today. Gosh, that's crazy, isn't it? So going on to childhood issues, it's actually quite common, probably more common than a lot of people realise, for children who don't necessarily have epilepsy to have a random seizure. Yeah. Talk us through that. Yeah, so it's called febrile seizures and it's caused by, um, in young children, they don't have the ability to regulate their temperature um, as well as adults do. Um, it's all part of a brain called the hypothalamus um, and they can have what's called febrile seizures. So it disrupts the electrical activity in the brain and that causes them then to have seizure symptoms, so convulsions as a result of a high temperature. And what would you do in response? Call an ambulance. Okay. Yeah, don't restrain them, move any objects away from them that could be harmful if you need to pad around their head to make sure they don't become injured as a result of the seizure and, and call an ambulance uh, without delay. Once they stop seizing, uh, talk to them, reassure them, because it's quite a scary experience for the casualty. Yeah, I know that's so true. And then I'm going to drowning here, which sounds a bit dramatic. It could be sort of any form of sort of water inhalation that's prevented them from breathing. I always fear that if you put your mouth over the nose and mouth of the baby, you're just going to push the water back into the lungs. Put me straight. No, not necessarily. So the, the key thing in that situation is that the baby starts breathing again. Um, giving five initial rescue breaths is super, super important um, to start that breathing process. You may find that there is water already in their lungs. Um, and this is something that's quite a commonly unknown fact is that somebody can suffer from secondary drowning, regardless of age. Once they've got water in their lungs, they start breathing again they are conscious they're fine for the rest of the day they go to bed that evening go to sleep and when they're lying down they then drown unfortunately once they're lying down because the water is now lying flat across the lungs and and they drown then later so anybody who has been underwater for a period of time and has or there is a chance they may have swallowed water needs to go to hospital to be scanned to see if there actually is water on their lungs but going back to your situation with the baby and, and you know being afraid of doing those initial rescue breaths around the nose and mouth that is the most important thing you can do in that situation is to give rescue breaths and get them breathing again the water in their lungs is kind of not the most important thing the priority is that the casualty survives and is breathing Whilst we're talking about that, it reminds me that I get, <laughs> you're going to worry about me after this, but I get confused about the recovery position. I mean, we did it at school. I even trained to be a lifeguard, but I think I might have that freeze moment over. What What was it? Where, how do I do this? What, what position? So I'm going to say something quite controversial here, especially given that I am a first aid trainer. I don't like the recovery position. I think it's something that you learn once, you do it on your first aid course, you forget it probably about a week to two weeks later. And then when you come to actually do it, you panic. Yes. If you can't remember exactly which arm goes where, which leg goes where, what hand goes against the cheek and all of that, I don't really care. The key point from the recovery position is that it keeps the airway open. It keeps them on their side with the head tilted back so that the airway is open. So head lift, chin tilt. And as long as they're on their side and they're in a position where if they were going to be sick, which is pretty likely with a lot of things that cause unconsciousness, they would be sick onto the floor and not sick into the back of their throat. I don't care where their arms and legs are. The principle is on your side, airway open. OK, and then obviously you can't do mouth to mouth in that position. So if the casualty stops breathing, you would then roll them back onto their back and start CPR. 
So once they've started, once they've stopped breathing, but what if, what, if, okay, <laughs> they're on their back and they've stopped breathing. So many questions. I know. <laughs> well, that's why you're here. So if a casualty is not breathing, you need to do CPR unless they have a do not resuscitate order. Very unlikely. Call an ambulance and do CPR. If they are breathing and you don't suspect that they have a spinal injury, because if they do, you're not going to move them. You're going to leave them in the position you found them, then put them in the recovery position. The recovery position is for breathing casualties to maintain an open airway. Necessarily another question then. They are breathing, but you're worried they might have a spinal injury. Don't move them. Leave them in the position you found them in, possibly some rolled up towels or clothing or whatever you have around you to, to pad around them and hold the head. So with one hand either side of the head, not covering the ears um, and just keep them in that position, even if they regain consciousness or if they are conscious to start with. You need to be very adamant and very firm that they stay in that position until they've been checked out by a medical professional. Um, some casualties don't like being told that, but this is where you have to use your people skills and be very firm and say, look, there's no disadvantage to you lying here. Let's get you checked out. You know, if you move and you've got a spinal injury, you could have life changing injuries. OK, possible spinal injury, not breathing. Do CPR. Again, it's about priorities. Unfortunately, we have to be a bit blunt in first aid sometimes. So the priority is to preserve their life over uh, prevent worsening being the second aim. If you have to tilt their head back to give them rescue breaths, to put it very bluntly, I would rather be breathing with a damaged spine than dead with an intact one. Yes, it reminds me of something that our first aider told us in the fostering first aid. Undead them. Yes, undead them. Unfortunately, the longer you go without doing CPR, the more the brain is cut off from oxygen. It's all about early CPR, not perfect CPR, not paramedic CPR, early CPR. Even if you're not confident, just yeah. start. Something is better than nothing. And, and that is another question to ask is because you get told all these songs and rhythms that you can do. And, and again, that could immobilise somebody. So the ambulance service, uh, once you phone them, let's say you're on your own, which is quite likely if you're with a child or a baby, put them on speakerphone. They will actually count the rhythm for you. So they will be going, tell me when you're ready to do your next set of chest compressions. And you say, OK, I'm ready. They'll go push, 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 push. And you just follow the rhythm and compress the chest. Even if you don't want to do the rescue breaths or you're not confident doing your rescue breaths or I don't know, the casualty has a facial injury or any other situation, you don't know them, it's a stranger in the street perhaps, just doing hands-only CPR, so continuous chest compressions, is enough and has been enough to save lives. So even if you're not confident, just give the chest compressions a go and make sure the ambulance is on their way. No point yes. <laughs> jumping up and down on their chest if there's no ambulance on the way. And they'll stay on the phone too, won't they? But in the absence of exactly. all of that, which is unlikely that you haven't got a phone and you have got Alexa, but was it you who was telling me about Alexa? Don't say the words, you'll set mine off. Don't say any of those magic words. <laughs> Don't say Siri with the word hey before it either. So we all have these wonderful devices that do things without us even having to type anything or touch anything. If you say the magic words, you can use those devices to call an ambulance. So I'm not going to say the magic words now because it will set everything off in your home and my home. But if you say magic words and then call an ambulance, it will do that without you having to be anywhere near it. And quite often smartphones now have an emergency setting so if people do have medical details and you can look at their phone a bystander or, or somebody can help you out with that it will tell you if they have any medical conditions who their emergency contacts are are they allergic to anything their age are they a blood donor and all those types of things if that's been set up and that applies to both uh, iphone and android it's worth putting those details in and let's say it did become obvious to you quite quickly that this person has an EpiPen. Mm -hmm. how do we stop people going up? I don't know what to do with that phone and ambulance and they will tell you what to do next which is my 
textbook answer to everything, but it's true. Um, as first aiders, the only medication we can give is that aspirin that I talked about for a suspected heart attack if they're not allergic to it, they're over 16 and they're not already on blood thinners. A lot of ifs and buts there, but if somebody was unconscious and they had a severe allergic reaction and they're lying next to an EpiPen or you know they have an EpiPen in their pocket, is the ambulance going to tell you then what to do with that? Probably yes, but at least then it's taking the pressure off of you and you're doing that with an informed decision maker, which ambulance call handlers are trained to do. Yeah, brilliant. So by the same token, what if someone's asthmatic? So medication is really individual and it's um, prescribed to each individual person by medical professionals who know what they're prescribing, that it's not going to cause them any harm. So as first aiders, we can't really prescribe anything. We can advise casualties to take the medication that they've been given. There is a bit of an exception of this when it comes to kids. So quite often schools will have spare asthma inhalers, like a standard type asthma inhaler available because it is so common in young children. I think it's one in five young children have asthma, but that is only for kind of life-threatening situations. And again, it would be combined with phoning an ambulance, telling them the symptoms and having them then make that decision and advise you, yes, if you do have an asthma inhaler available at the school, give that to them and see if that helps improve their condition, just because it's so such a common problem and it is probably likely to, to save a life. But we have to be really careful not to cause more harm in the first place. Just phoning the ambulance is the most important thing you can do in 99% of first aid, emergency first aid situations. And it's interesting because you've said that a number of times and I wonder if I would be reticent to phone an ambulance as in what's an emergency yeah that's a really good question so just because you phoned the ambulance service does not mean they're necessarily going to send you an ambulance they have a method of categorizing calls based on the answers to the questions that they ask you the top one is category one which is a target response time of seven and a half minutes and that's for things like children having seizures unconscious casualties who aren't breathing etc etc life-threatening emergencies then it goes down to category two which is a target response time of 18 minutes that's not to say you're going to get an ambulance within 18 minutes but that's their target response time that would be things that are also requiring an emergency response but not as high priority as category one and so on and so forth and it goes all the way down to category five and they also have a term called down doris which is old lady fallen over which unfortunately goes right to the bottom of the list for doris so the ambulance service knows what's high priority and what's not by phoning them, the call handlers are trained to be able to give you advice over the phone. So if you call them, they can give you that advice. If you don't call them, they can't give you that advice. So just pick up the phone and phone. They are trained to decide whether you need an emergency ambulance or not. And it sounds like even if they don't think that you do, they'll be able to talk you through what your next steps should be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, if you've got something as simple as, I don't know, broken wrist, let's say, you know, child falls over, does it at an awkward angle fairly likely that a wrist gets broken they may say look we're very busy right now we have a high volume of calls and we are unable to respond to your call wait times are extremely long is there any chance that you can transport the casualty to hospital yourself you know keep the wrist as still as possible you know whether that be the casualty supports it with their other hand or you just tie a scarf around their neck and they use that as a sling or whatever make them comfortable and get them in the car and get them off the hospital at least then they've given you that advice and you phoned if it is you know Sunday morning and there's hardly anything going on and they can and they've got an ambulance available they can send you great they can transport the casualty to hospital with their medical advice and it, an ambulance is actually a lot less bumpy than riding in a car is which is why it's really handy for things like ankle injuries so phone ask worst they can do is say no good point and speaking of breaks I've got written binders you find I mean I'm sure that I wouldn't try to 
unravel a messed up leg but have you got anything to say into that speaking yeah for some bizarre reason we feel the need to well I know why it's not bizarre it's because we want to help we want to do something to make the casualty feel better and, and make it better but actually just don't move them because if anybody's ever broken a bone and they're listening to this they know it's incredibly painful and the last thing you want to do is be fussed about with and made a sling or a splint or whatever if the casualty's comfortable just lying still or just holding their arm or sitting as they are just leave them be you don't have to do the world's best sling or splint the key thing is to keep them as still as possible and phone an ambulance <laughs> again phone an ambulance I'm okay. like a stuck record aren't I sorry <laughs> <laughs> no it's good maybe that's what somebody will take out of this nosebleed head up head down oh my gosh this is one of my like pet hates that there's such a misconception around this so head forwards I can guarantee you that if you put your head back it will go down your throat and out your mouth I know this because I had a nosebleed in the shower once and I tried it because I knew it was wrong just to see what would happen it's disgusting don't do it head forward pinch the soft part of the nose at the bottom as well there seems to be a misconception to pinch the top of the nose pinch the soft part at the bottom head forwards if it's a young child usually giving them a bowl or something that they can spit or dribble into is quite a good idea discourage them from talking spitting sneezing coughing running about good luck with that <laughs> concussion how do you know if someone has been concussed or is concussed okay so head injuries are two different types uh, concussions and compressions are the two kind of categories that most head injuries fall into without getting into too much detail of one or the other because that's a whole three-day course that i deliver if you have a young person who has a head injury seek medical advice um so i actually do some volunteer work for the royal air force air cadets and our policy is any unexpected blow to the head means that that young person has to be checked out by a medical professional which is really annoying when they do something really minor like head a football or walk face first into an open window and they have a small bump on their head and with you know if it was your own child you'd be fairly certain that it's a bit of a bruise and there's nothing wrong with them but because of that policy we actually have to take them to hospital I'm glad you wait for 12 hours in A&E to be <laughs> checked which is wonderful fun for us volunteers that that's exactly what we wanted to do with our Saturday afternoon but yeah. there we are yes I mean it's quite funny that you've given some examples because when you said any unexpected blow to the head I'm thinking what's an expected blow to the head well playing football oh, would be an example or yeah a weird kind of dance move I don't know I don't actually have an answer for that <laughs> okay electric shocks okay so um actually falls under the category of burns so there's two types of causes of burns that would instantly qualify for needing medical attention and they are chemical and electrical burns you don't know how that charge has passed through the body it could have caused internal damage there may also be an exit burn which is not something that people would often think to look for casualties usually quite preoccupied with their hand that went into the plug socket or wherever it was hurting and don't realize that there's actually an exit burn as well so yeah cool running water and medical advice switch the plug off oh yeah danger 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 first yeah any first aid situation danger to yourself danger to any casualties and danger to any bystanders well, you're absolutely no good. use to the casualty if you're injured yourself well Funnily i think enough. worth you unpicking that a bit because as obvious as that sounds it's falling in the middle of the road your inclination is to go and run into the yeah middle. and it is a really hard instinct to fight um, and this is why i want to do my training courses i make a big fuss over doing the danger swim so i need to see as an assessor that my participants are looking for danger when they do their assessment it's all role play and it's all a bit of nonsense we all know that there's no danger in the area but I have them do almost like a little breaststroke motion and say I'm checking for danger in a really obvious way 
So not only does that mean that I as an assessor can see that they've done it and I can tick the box that said, yes, you've got that first aid skill, but it also creates muscle memory so that when you are in a first aid situation, you think, right, first thing I do, check the danger. Paramedics are trained to do it. They will stand in the doorway of a room where first aid situation has materialized and take a deep breath. Really annoying if you're the person waiting for the ambulance because you're like, come on, where's your sense of urgency? This person's having a stroke or whatever it is, but actually taking that deep breath and assessing the situation allows them to assess how many casualties are there? Who's the higher priority? Is there any danger to me or any bystanders or any casualties in this room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a leaf that we could do with taking out the paramedics book is just deep breath, assess the situation. And what sort of immediate dangers might they be looking for in your living room, for example? Could be a number of things. So really extreme examples would be faulty electricals, fires, falling down ceilings, floods, you know, really obvious dangers like that. But actually the attitude of the people in the room. So people can actually become a danger themselves if they're being particularly aggressive or interfering. Quite often the, the easiest way to remedy that is to go and give them a task to do. Can you go and get me a glass of water? Can you go and get the first aid kit? Can you go and get a blanket, anything, it might not actually be something that they need. They just want you out of their face. Well, and, and also it is good for the person who is perhaps reacting in a way that they're responding, having a shock response, because a treatment for shock is giving someone something to focus on if they're conscious and able to do that. And that actually then calms you down because you've got a task to focus on. Mm, that makes sense. One of the things that I remember taking home from our first aid course, of which I've clearly forgotten most, was it never occurred to me to have um, a fire escape plan. You think of that as something you'd associate with a school. How do you feel about that for a home? Yeah, I think it's a good conversation to have with young people. You know, you don't have to go and do a three hour training course on it or anything. But, you know, <laughs> even if it's just a quick question and say, or even a role play game with the kids, if you wanted to take it that far, you know, if there was a fire coming up the stairs, what would we do? Oh, we'd have to climb out the window, wouldn't we? We'd have to go, you know, over to the wall down here and have to be really careful because we wouldn't do that normally because, you know, we might hurt ourselves. But if there was a fire and we had to, that's what we would do. Having had that conversation, then yeah. you've got an action plan in place. They will. They will invoke that in that magic moment. Well, there's a higher chance they will than if they didn't have that conversation. And keeping doors shut is a lot is a, something that people don't realise. The temperature in a bedroom would be unsurvivable if the bedroom door is not shut, if there's a fire downstairs in the living room, for example, and people will die from smoke inhalation. And the only difference is whether your bedroom door is open or shut. There's a really good YouTube video called Close Before You Doze by American Fire Services that did an experiment on this with one door open, one door shut. Um, and the difference was, was uh, well, life life changing, basically. So close before you doze. I like a little jingle bites dog bites any other bites human bites hopefully not um yeah ones to watch out for would be um particularly bee stings and wasp stings do you know that your child's allergic to them until they get bitten no not really so really careful to monitor for signs of allergic reaction any difficulty in breathing swelling of the hands face airway areas or anything in the throat red face patchy rash anything like that phone 999 ask for emergency help because it is a life-threatening situation if they're not allergic to it then it's quite straightforward if the sting's stuck in it you can use a, a credit card or a tesco club card other brands are available to <laughs> scrape out the stinger because if you try and use tweezers it's probably just going to snap and stay under the skin so you can use that to scrape in the opposite direction to get rid of the stinger ice is a good one i have actually been stung by a wasp in the middle of nowhere and i hadn't been stung by a wasp before but i found out Good result of that situation. I am not allergic to wasps uh, or wasp things. It was actually not sort of the place you want to be when you want to find out if you're deathly allergic to something or not. But there we are. Ice was incredibly helpful. So 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off just to help with the pain and also reduces some of the swelling. Brilliant. Dog bite. If 
the casualty hasn't had tetanus, I'd advise them to go in A&E and have a tetanus jab just in case. If it's a known dog to you and you've had your tetanus jab, then you're probably okay. Just irrigate the wound with lots of cold water and treat as you would any other bleed, direct pressure and elevate the limb. Brilliant. Keep it clean. Choking. Now, this is what confuses me. We were told, turn a child upside down, but do the Heimlich on an adult. What would you say? Okay, so for children and adults, give five back slaps first. Encourage the casualty to cough, first of all. If they can't cough, then they are choking. Give them five back slaps. So lean them forward over your one arm and use the heel of your hand on the other side to strike between the shoulder blades hard, not how you would normally treat anybody, um, but hard enough that it could dislodge the object. Five of those. If that doesn't work, turn the casualty around, place your fist just below the ribs, just above the belly button, Grasp your fist with the other hand. So your hands are coming from and from behind the casualty around them, like you're hugging them backwards, hugging them from behind. Fist just below the ribs and pull inwards and upwards sharply to try and essentially push air out and therefore push the object out as well. I have actually done this at a party for a lady who was choking on a grape and she comically caught it in her hand in front of her like we were in a cartoon. And the oh, mistake wow. I made is I didn't hit her hard enough the first time, which is pretty classic it is a back blow you are giving somebody a blow so you do have to hit them pretty hard to get the object to come out so that's for children and adults for babies put them across your leg face down and don't use the heel of hand because you're going to use too much force use the palm of your hand and use a measured amount of force so enough to dislodge the object but not enough to break anything essentially five back slaps if that doesn't work turn them face up again holding them across your knee support the head and put two fingers in the center of the chest not in the stomach this is the key difference and give up to five chest thrusts and um, i have a video i can recommend you later that will show that in a way that people can watch uh, it's a little mm. bit difficult to explain on audio i'm going to ask you for your recommendations stupid question when you're slapping someone on the back is there any fear that you'll actually lodge it further down Pretty unlikely. People's own reflexes should mean that the object comes up. And because you're leaning them forward, gravity is also going to help with that object coming up. Now, let's just say we're not applying this on a child, we're applying it on an adult. And they're taller mm -hmm. than us, much heavier than us. Leaning them over or getting your fist up to their ribcage feels like it might be harder. Ask the casualty to kneel. Too obvious. <laughs> and vice versa, and if the casualty is much smaller than you... If you've got a five-year-old child, you're much taller than they are, you kneel. Okay, too easy. Last but not least, objects in the mouth. Yeah, so again, this is a really common misconception. And I've recently heard of someone who got this wrong and in quite a dangerous way. So anybody who is unconscious, do not put your fingers in an unconscious person's mouth. There are no exceptions to that rule. The reasons for this are... You risk pushing the objects further down the throat, creating more of a problem or completely choking them. There's also a reflex where people can bite when they're unconscious. The jaw is one of the strongest muscles in the body and you risk injuring yourselves by losing some of your fingertips. You've then given them something else to choke on, as nasty as that is. Just phone the ambulance service and they will tell you what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> so don't put your fingers in an unconscious person's mouth. The story that I heard with this yeah. was somebody who actually was a trained nurse and she put a pen lid, or was it a pen, a pen or something, in the mouth of somebody who was having a convulsive seizure because it's an old fashioned thing from years ago. People were worried that people were gonna choke on their tongue. Yes, um, but actually a, a lot of older epileptics have teeth missing because they had spoons shoved in their mouth when they were having a seizure. Don't put anything in an unconscious person's mouth there. I've said it three times. Oh, but you've got to tell us what <laughs> happened. 
to, to the lady who was having a seizure. Yeah. Fortunately, she was fine, but she could have quite easily broken the pen into several little pieces and choked on it. Why on earth this ex-nurse lady thought she should put something in their mouth was beyond me. Sometimes when people have seizures, they do stop breathing for a short period of time, but it's not enough to starve the brain of oxygen. So actually just wait for them to stop seizing. Time it. If it's more than four minutes, then then you need to start thinking about what you're going to do next. And you should certainly be phoning an ambulance. I think that you have definitely plugged that point home. Interestingly, I wonder if what listeners would say, I would be far more likely now to call an ambulance than I would have been before the podcast. Yeah, and if anyone's interested, there's a really good show on BBC iPlayer with the title Ambulance that follows real-life ambulance calls and the call centres. So you see how the call handlers deal with the calls, how they send out the ambulances, what the paramedics then do when they arrive. So if anyone has a, a spare half hour to watch that when the kids go to bed or whatever, highly recommend watching Ambulance. It gives you a much better understanding of how the system works. So that seems, that's called Ambulance. Any other resources you... Yeah, on BBC. Yeah, so if you don't have a lot of time, you know, I'm not expecting everybody to go and do that. There are two incredibly short videos that you can watch on YouTube. Both of them are by St. John's Ambulance. Um, one is how to use a defibrillator, just to give people that extra confidence. And you can find it just by searching St. John's Ambulance ambulance defibrillator and the other one is um st john's ambulance choking jelly babies if you type in choking jelly babies it will come up and i there's a very famous actor that voices the the choking jelly baby but i can't quite remember what his name is so you have to go and watch that and then um, they can see if they can figure out the name of the actor you have to watch it a few times to figure out the name of the actor and then you'll have really got it stuck in your memory as well oh okay (laughs) brilliant thank you so much wow that was a, a whirlwind tour Yeah, I hope it's been helpful. I feel like I've just thrown information at everybody, but hopefully some of that is helpful and you never need any of it. It's the only course I teach where I say, I hope you use nothing I've taught you. Yes, it was definitely helpful. Had you worked out what the cling film and the credit card were for? Do you keep aspirin in your first aid kit? I should think there are loads of things in there and we'll all have different things that we picked up that will be useful for us to know and hopefully be useful for somebody else when we help them in the future. So a massive thank you to Meg. If you want to check out some of the things that she referenced, I've put them in the show notes. Also, if you want to get in touch with Meg, I highly recommend it. She's offering to do a £100 three-hour first aid course. So if you've got a bunch of parents that you want to get together, I mean, even if there are only five of you, you're looking at sort of 20 quid each, aren't you? So it's got to be worth it to see whether or not there are some questions that you can ask and dig in and just kind of arm yourself just in case. And hopefully, as she says, you'll never need it. So do get in touch with her. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you in November. My birthday just saying.